If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Acts 28. This is the, the last week of our study through the book of Acts, and I know some of you are like, oh, really? And some of you are like, yes, you know, we're finally at the end of this. We're on, ready to get on to the next thing. I totally understand that. Um, this is the, the end as we know it, hence the title of this sermon, uh, which just means that the book of Acts is really the end of the beginning. The book of Acts doesn't represent the end of the expansion of the church. It doesn't represent the end of the advancement of the gospel. It doesn't represent the end of the work of the risen Christ. In all those ways, these things are still going on. The book of Acts is just the beginning of all that. And we now, some 2,000 plus years later, get to see and behold all that has taken place, all that the risen Christ has done, all that uh, has unfolded since then and continues on. Uh, we last left off in our study of Acts, you know, last week with a cliffhanger. The Apostle Paul, the most influential missionary in world history, uh, is nearing the end of his life. It's, it's the middle of the first century, a little bit on the other side of that. And um, he is en route to Rome from Judea. As you may recall, spent a couple of years in prison, when he was in Jerusalem, some folks uh, accused him of, of uh, defiling or trying to defile the temple and disparaging their religion and so on. And so Paul is in prison. He goes through the, the, the two governors, Felix and, and Festus, and then he, is, he appeals to Caesar. And so he is commissioned to go to Caesar. And this would not be, as you may recall from the last couple of weeks, a very easy journey to get to Rome from Caesarea, Judea, was about a five-week trip, and that's if everything went smoothly, if the weather cooperated, and it certainly uh, did not. It was a very rough trip. At last report, the ship he was on had crashed into a reef, uh, gotten stuck there, and it was being torn apart by the waves and the undercurrent, and those on board actually had to jump off the ship and either swim to the island or float uh, with some of the broken pieces of the boat. So uh, for you, those of you who are visual learners, let me just kind of give you a picture of kind of how we've gotten to where we are. Um, as you can see, it's been a bit of a circuitous route uh, from Caesarea up north to Sidon, and then Paul would go, uh, he would go west to Myra and then off to Nidus, the sea is silent. And then it would make it to Fairhavens. And then Fairhavens, this little port in Crete, is where there's this big dilemma. Should we stay? Should we go? Ultimately, they decide to go. And instead of going north toward Italy, they end up get, getting swept out to sea, um, as you uh, can tell from the map, kind of where the almost looks like a crooked smile or a smirk. They get pushed out into the deep sea, out into the vast ocean, and they barely survive, frankly. Water comes into the boat, the boat almost tilts over, they're unloading all the supplies, throwing over all the cargo, and they eventually would end up on, at Malta, which is at the far left of your map. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, let's look at Acts 28, verses 1 through 4 here to start out with. Here reads the word of the Lord. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened 
on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So the island of Malta was about 60 miles south of Sicily. It was about 180 miles northeast of Africa. This is what uh, you call a UUPG, that is an unreached, unengaged people group. Uh, The gospel's never been presented to the folks at Malta. There's no Christian on the island. There's no Bible. uh, There's no church. There's no sort of gospel inroad at this time. They've never, ever heard the name Jesus. And, And by the way, there are still hundreds, I think the latest report, 300 plus of these UUPGs in the world even today. It's hard to believe with internet and, and so on that there would still be people, but there are still hundreds of unreached, unengaged people groups in the world. Uh, but here in Malta, they're actually surprisingly receptive to these shipwrecked visitors. It's rainy and cold, and so uh, being very hospitable, they prepare for their, their uh, again, their visitors a fire. And they gather around to warm themselves at the fire. But when Paul reaches down to put some sticks into the fire, a poisonous snake, a viper, springs up and bites him. And he's not just bitten. The snake actually latches on to Paul and won't let go. Can you imagine the scene? Paul's a guy who uses a lot of gestures. He's using his hands. There's a snake, a poisonous snake, hanging from his hand that won't let go. What do these unevangelized people naturally do They moralize Paul's suffering. They conclude that Paul was bitten by the snake because he's an evil person. Why else would such a terrible thing happen to someone? It must be because he is a murderous villain and justice will have her way. They're certain that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And that's just the way it is. And this is not just the natural response of unevangelized, uncivilized islanders, this is what, frankly, we're all inclined to do, moralize suffering. That is, we conclude if things are going really well for us and, and they're just clicking on all cylinders and we have our health and, and we have our energy and things are great at, at work, then it must necessarily be because we've been good people and God is blessing us. But when things take a turn for the worse and something happens to our health, something happens to our children, something happens at our work, something happens to our finances, we necessarily conclude that we've done something bad and God must be punishing us. So we think, in order for me to get beyond this suffering, in order for me to to be relieved of the suffering, what I have to do is I've got to clean my life up. I've got to get things in order so that things will go better for me. Suffering is viewed as God evening the score. When I sin... God makes me suffer. When something bad has happened in my life, it has to be because of some sin that I've committed. Well, that mindset, what do you think that mindset leads to? Well, when something tragic happens in your life, it certainly leads to frustration, fear, anxiety, uh, even anger against God. We think, I'm trying my best here. I'm doing my very best. Why would you do this to me? Or even uh, when we do feel like we've cleaned up our lives and we still suffer, we become frustrated with God, well, here's the beautiful truth that the New Testament teaches, and that is when Jesus died on the cross, 
He severed the link between suffering and deserving once for all. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he actually gets or got what we deserve. Punishment, wrath, condemnation, separation. But when we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust that what he did on the cross was enough, we actually get what he deserves. Forgiveness, God's approval, love, acceptance. Jesus didn't need to be forgiven, but we get God's approval because we're trusting in what Christ has done for us on the cross. So all of those things are ours in Christ. I was talking with a pastor last week who's at a, I don't know, I guess what you might call a progressive church in the East Coast, and, or maybe let's say it's a very progressive area, he said, and he's going through some really difficult challenges at the moment, very difficult time in the life of the church. Some of the philosophical issues that we're wrestling with, really all of us as Christians are wrestling with across the country, um, they're dealing with and really threatening to divide their church, issues related to government and medicine and even race relations. And so all of that has is, is really hit their church hard, and, and he's exhausted, and, and he's just worn out and drained. And, and he also, as he was talking to me, he said, you know, I had some really very, very difficult challenges in the previous church that I served. They weren't these specific things, but similar philosophical stuff. And he was one, he said, I don't, maybe I didn't handle those perfectly. Maybe I didn't handle those so well. And he said to me, I don't believe in karma. I really don't, but I can see how people do. It's, it's hard not to look at this as God's punishment on me for something. The reason I'm going through this. And, and I reminded him that as believers, we don't have to worry when things go badly that it's God putting the smack down on us. We don't have to worry when we get sick or we lose a job or our kids get sick or we're diagnosed with cancer or spouse leaves us or a child is born with a, a very unique challenge. We don't have to worry that God is out to get us. We're simply living in a sin-cursed world where suffering happens. But that same God continues to love us, provide for us, and remain with us through it all, comforting us by His presence and reassuring us of his love. So unlike the residents of Malta, Paul made no faulty assumptions. Now look at how the story unfolds, verses 5 and 6. Paul, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall, fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, he was a god. Pretty incredible response, really. We've kind of learned, Janine and I, after 27 years of marriage, that you know, if there's a if there's a crisis, a re- relational crisis, there's something that goes on in the family. If we're in- encountering a, a very difficult situation, you know, she very quickly defers to me and and you know has me handle it. And and by God's grace, you know, um, I'm, I tend to be pretty level, pretty even, except in the situations of medical emergencies. And that's when I have to very quickly find my wife because I can, I can just, you know, absolutely go to the farthest extreme, right? One time when uh, our oldest, Quinn, was just a little, I guess he was maybe two years old, and I was, Janine was uh, working, and I, I, had, I was with him for the day, and I decided to go into the office and do some work, and um, I was trying to do some work. I went into the nursery, 
uh, the church's nursery, and I kind of set up a little place for me to work on my laptop. And I didn't realize it, but Quinn had climbed to the top of this plastic house, and, and he fell off of that and had a, got a huge gash at the top of his head. You know how it is with, with head injuries, right? Even the small, he, he sort of warbles over to me, just covered in blood, totally covered in blood. And I mean, I just, I had no idea how to handle it. I went into panic mode. I tried to get a hold of Janine. She talked me through it. But when it comes to medical stuff, you know, I need somebody around who's a little calmer than I am. Here's Paul. He has a viper attached to his hand, and he's, he just sort of coolly, calmly shakes it off. No worries. He just shakes it back into the fire and then carries on. Now, how do you think Paul was able to respond that way? How did he remain, retain or remain composed? How was it that he didn't freak out and panic? It was because God had promised Paul that Paul would get to Rome, and Paul believed it. Think of the irony in this situation. Paul had survived this horrific hurricane-like storm where the ship is almost turned over and submerged. He survives that, including having to jump over the ship's stern into the Mediterranean Sea, only to arrive on shore and immediately get bitten by a deadly snake. But Paul is not concerned because he trusts in God. Twice now, God has shown up to Paul and said, you will make it to Rome. And here's Paul with this viper attached to his arm thinking, well, I'm not in Rome yet. This is not Rome. And God has told me that I'm going to get to Rome, so there's no way that this thing will kill me. There's no way that this thing will kill me. Here's our first point this morning. Trust in God's promises enables us to endure adversity without losing hope. When we trust in God's promises, it, it, it enables us by His power to endure adversity without losing hope. Life for the Christian, as we know, is not an easy life. Um, in fact, some of you are going through some very difficult challenges even now. We know that life for the Christian is not an easy life because of Jesus' teaching, but also by our own experience. And then we know further, when we put our faith in Jesus, things don't actually get easier, they get harder, because then we enter into the realm of spiritual battle, a battle we don't really face when we are unregenerate, before we're made alive in Christ. So when we put our faith in Christ, we are inviting opposition, inviting trials, and entering into spiritual warfare. So things don't get easier when we become a Christian. But they do become more hopeful. They do become more peaceful. Because we know that despite what we go through, God has made promises to us that He will keep. For example, when Jesus launches His multiplying disciples-making ministry at the end of Matthew's Gospel, what we know is the Great Commission. He says to His disciples, I will be with you always. There's not a moment in the life of the disciple. There's not a moment in your life when Jesus is not with you, praying for you, helping you, encouraging you, empowering you, loving you, and enabling you to persevere. And speaking of God's promise, promises, the same Paul uh, would say in the book of Romans, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's a promise that applies to you and me. If you're a Christian, you belong to God. God has, has made you His own. He has spoken His approval over you in Christ. You stand completely and totally forgiven by Him at this very moment. 
And maybe you have this thing in the back of your mind and you have this thing that you've done and you just feel like, I don't know. I don't know if I've been forgiven. Well, God has told you in no uncertain terms. He has assured you with absolute certainty that your standing with Him is totally secure. You are forgiven and loved by God at this very moment. And not even you can ruin that. As we sang together this morning, He will hold me fast. When I fear, my faith will fail. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Especially in those moments when we don't feel close to God. You, know, you, don't, you don't feel loved by God. But in those moments, we can know that God's love for us hasn't changed. It never changes. It's constant because His character is constant. Now, the way we experience the God, God's love, the way we feel about God's love may change. But our feelings deceive us. The truth is, when we feel most unlovable and most ashamed, that's when God draws closer. He doesn't shrink away. When we feel weakest, that's when the power of God is most prevalent in our lives. We can trust God's promises. That's what Paul did. Paul, you know, he's bitten by the snake, but he knows that God has already said to him that he will make it to Rome, and he's not at Rome, so he knows that he will not be derailed. Now look at verses uh, 7 through 10. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul and his companions are in the island of Malta, at this island of Malta, for three months, and while they're there, God actually enables Paul to do these incredible things, to, to perform miracles. Um, he heals the village chief's father of disease, and then people start bringing all their sick and diseased people to Paul, and he heals them, reminds us of what the Gospels say about Jesus. Matthew 14 tells us the news of Jesus' arrival spread quickly throughout the whole area, and soon people were bringing all their sick to be healed. And make no mistake, the one doing the healing here on this island of Malta is Jesus. It's the risen Christ. Paul has no power in himself, has no ability, no strength of his own to heal these people of all their various diseases. This is the risen Christ working through his messengers, empowering them and affirming the gospel message among those who have never heard. And many people put their faith in Christ. Many people believe. God does a revival on this island, healing people both physically and spiritually that will lead to many trusting in Jesus. And then for generation after generation, God will continue this work on the island of Malta. Here's what Malta looks like today. It's a beautiful port, as you can see. Look at the, that beautiful city, beautiful island. Well, do you know there are thousands of Christians now on Malta? Hundreds of churches. Now, many of those are Roman Catholic churches, but there are others. In fact, get this. In the heart of the island of Malta is the, is the Bible Baptist Church of Malta. Here's a picture. And the vision of the Bible Baptist Church of Malta is this. 
Our desire is for people to be born again, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and going on to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. This is 2,000 years after God sort of uh, sovereignly redirected Paul and his crew and, and sovereignly caused them to crash onto the shore. Now there are hundreds, thou, hundreds of churches and thousands of believers on the island of Malta. Now I want to go back to the, the map and show you kind of how they ended up. After their three-month stay in Malta, Paul and others are taken to another ship heading to Rome. They, they stop along the way at Syracuse and then north at Regium, and then a brief stay in Puteoli, and then finally they make it to Rome. What God has promised Paul has come to fruition. God was faithful to his promise to Paul. Well, there were some Jews living in Rome, actually quite a, lo- a large number at that time, mostly around the edges of the city in a region known as the Trans-Tiberium. And they get together, they hear about Paul coming, they get together to hear from Paul, and Paul shares with them all that he's been through. And that group of Jews are so intrigued that they set up uh, a day for this huge crowd. They want everybody to hear from Paul. Now look at what happens in verse 23. They get everybody together, and then when they had appointed a day for him, for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Do you see a theme here, what Paul is doing? Janine sometimes tells me that I can obsess over things. Uh, that I have a one-track mind, that I can easily fixate on something, which means that if I'm, if I'm obsessing over something, I'm basically useless in a conversation. Um, this happens sometimes because my mind is, is somewhere else. I just, and I know this about myself, and I'm working on it, but I can really get, get locked into one thing. Uh, well, on Friday morning, Janine and I worked out for the first time in two months. Uh, we got some cardio in and some weights, and then later... That same afternoon, about 4 o'clock, I said to her, I said, what do you think about getting another workout in tonight? Her response was, what's wrong with you? I mean, see, like, what is your deal here? Like, we, we haven't worked out in two months. We worked out this morning. I mean, she said it in a very loving and supportive way. But she said, what is your deal? You know, we don't need to work it. We don't need to go from not working out for two months to multiple times a day. I can easily, uh, again, fixate on something. Well, she said, for you, it's kind of all or nothing, isn't it? Well, when it came to the Apostle Paul's ministry, he was all or nothing. To Paul, this whole thing, the entire Christian message is about one thing, or it's about nothing at all. It's about Christ and Him crucified, risen from the dead, and coming again. If there's a summarizing statement of Paul's activities for the bulk of his life, if there's one thing that consumed him throughout his life and ministry It's described in verse 23, he testified to the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. See, Paul knew that the Bible is not about fairly decent people kind of becoming better people. The Bible is not about uh, people working hard to make moral improvements. I had a friend who was way up in, in, in Disney, the Disney Corporation, and he he would sometimes talk about PIPs. They had, they had what they call PIPs, their performance improvement plan, which you would lay out to an employee that was struggling. The Bible is no PIP. The Bible is no performance improvement plan. The Bible 
as Paul would point out, is the story of God's plan to save a broken and helpless world through His Son. So what Paul spends his life doing is showing people how all the Bible is about Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. I was talking to a young man not long ago, and uh, he's a fairly new Christian who really wanted to lead his family well and wanted to be a good example, spiritual leader for his wife and for his children who were young. And he shared with me that he just was having the most difficult time reading his Bible. He said, I just can't, I just have the hardest time. I just sit down and I can't read it. I can't focus. And when I do read it, I get up and I realize I've not benefited at all. I get nothing out of it. It does nothing for me, he said, but discourage me. Now, I wasn't terribly alarmed by that because I've heard that many, many times over the years and I felt that way myself at times. What I've realized is for so many of us, the Bible is this book of sort of nuggets you ever heard anyone say, hey, give us a, a nugget or two? It's nuggets on how to live better, nuggets on how to improve our life, principles on how to live, basically a, a very lengthy to-do list. And so we go to the Bible, what we're really trying to do is mine it for some other uh, insight on how to live better. That's how this young man viewed the Bible. It was a collection of rules that basically haunted him didn't surprise me that he couldn't bring himself to read it anymore. Well, what does Luke tell us that Paul spent his time doing? Persuading everyone to clean up their lives? No. Announcing how to obtain your best life now? No. Giving them nuggets on how to live? No. He showed them how Jesus was the point of the Bible. He tried to convince them, verse 23, from the law and the prophets, in other words, what they had as the Scriptures, that Jesus was the only Savior of the world, the only one that God had promised, the one from ages past, the one who would suffer and die for a rebellious and sinful people. And here's why. This is our second point. Only when we see Jesus as the subject, object, and hero of the Bible will we experience renewal at the soul level. Otherwise, believe it or not, we become dry and cold spiritually. Now, maybe we, you know, we learn some things, but they're not things that transform us at the soul level. We have to understand and see Jesus as the object, the subject, object, and hero of the Bible. Now, of course, it's not just by looking at the Bible the right way that anyone is made right with God. It's not a correct hermeneutic, so to speak, that saves us. It's not rightly understanding how the Bible fits together that saves us. It's actually the person of the Bible who saves us. We're saved by clinging to that hero in faith, recognizing our own sinfulness, confessing our own failures and inadequacies and self-salvation projects, so to speak, and trusting in Jesus alone. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. His obedience for our disobedience. His sacrifice for us, His death for our rebellion. But receiving that requires soft hearts, supple hearts. Look at verses 24 through 28. And some were convinced by what He said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So things are you know, pretty much okay until he says one thing. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. 
For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can bear, or ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And then he says something pretty profound, pretty scandalous. They will listen. Now, there are two things, I think, going on here, very important things in the grand scheme of life. Uh, One, this statement in verse 28 is further evidence of the unfolding plan of God and, and yet again, God's faithfulness. So you go way back to Genesis 12, God appears to Abram, who we now know as Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make out of you a, a great nation. In fact, from you, all the peoples, all the nations, all the ethne of the world will be blessed. In other words, they're going to be introduced to the living God. Now, Abram at the time was not chosen by God because he was a good person. He was an idol worshiper. But God says, I'm going to re-. God brings Abram to saving faith, later renames him Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world through you. So, so through you and your descendants, all peoples will be introduced to me, the living God. Now, those are actually, you go back to Genesis 12, those are three, uh, that's one of the most important sections in the Bible. The promise of God, this promise of God has the gospel all over it. Now, Abraham doesn't understand all this, of course, but he, does, he doesn't recognize just how good of news this really is. It's the news that, through, that though fallen and sinful humanity deserves judgment and wrath, what God promises is the blessing of salvation to all peoples, to all nations. Well, here in Acts 28, 28, we, we see Paul saying that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, those who are not descendants of Abraham, they're actually going to listen. And the gospel is going to spread. It's going to have a multiplying effect throughout all the nations. They will hear and respond to the gospel. Just as God promised to Abraham thousands of years before, God is bringing people from every people group, every nation to himself through Abraham's descendant, Jesus the Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that that God is finished with ethnic Israel or that the gospel should no longer be preached to ethnic Israel. It most certainly should, and God is bringing Jewish people to faith. He's bringing ethnic Jews to faith even, even today. It's the entire focus of ministry like, ministries like Jews for Jesus. But what Paul is saying here in quoting Isaiah is the gospel will continue to expand as Gentiles, non-Jews, will hear the message and respond in faith. So that's one important aspect of, I think, what's going on here. But there's something else going on. This is a warning. Here's what it is. This is a warning against hard-heartedness. This is a warning against stubbornness. This is a warning against what we might call volitional unbelief. So when people, they object to Christianity, sometimes they do it on intellectual grounds. You know, they say, I don't believe something could be created out of nothing. I don't believe, I don't believe that. Sometimes it's more emotional objections. You know, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. But most of the time, their unbelief is volitional. It means they don't want to believe because they know if they do believe, it means coming under the authority of a true and righteous king. And so they chew. It's what volitional unbelief means. I, I, I don't want to believe. It's not as though I can dispute this. I don't want to believe because of the changes I may have to, I will necessarily have to make in my life. Now, a question that often comes up from this passage, and, and, and some others like it, did God harden their hearts and close their eyes, or did they harden their own hearts 
and closed their eyes? And you know the answer, of course, is yes. God tells the people in verse 26, you will indeed hear, but never understand. This is God's pronouncement on them. But then he says in verse 27, they, their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn. This is a reference, again, to stubbornness and volitional unbelief, those who refuse to believe because of what it will require of them coming under the supreme and absolute authority authority of a God and king. They don't want to be under anyone's authority. They don't want to live according to God's command. And they don't want to repent and believe in the Messiah that God has sent. So they refuse to turn. This is a warning not just to ethnic Israel, of course, but to all of us. It's our final point this morning. Here's what it is. It is impossible to hear the gospel preached and remain stagnant. Either will be moved to repentant faith or moved toward a hardness of heart. The Puritans had a saying that the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. This is what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. It either moves those who are humble those who are broken, those whom God has chosen, it moves them to, to brokenness and faith, or it moves the recalcitrant toward greater hardness of heart. This is what Paul would say to his audience in Rome. They knew the Scriptures. It wasn't though they didn't know the Scriptures. They could easily recall the words of Isaiah. But what Paul says to them is what Isaiah said is true. It's about you. Now, how will you respond? The same question I think is very pertinent for us today, isn't it? How will we respond to this message about Jesus? Will you dig in your heels and say, you know what, I've got this, I'm okay? Will you double down on your own goodness and say, you know what, I'm a lot better than so-and-so. I'm a lot better than he is. Will you choose unbelief? You know, you know this is true, but... Believing it would mean that you're going to have to change the way that you live, make changes maybe even to your living arrangements, maybe even change how you spend your time, change how you spend your money, change your priorities. And for those reasons, you, you won't believe. Or will you recognize your need for a Savior this morning, admit your own brokenness, your own sinfulness, confess that you've tried for so long to do this on your own, by your own power, the message of the gospel will either harden your heart this morning or bring you to repentant faith. And of course, if you're in Christ already, if you put your faith in Christ, the message of the gospel will strengthen your faith. It will encourage you. It will increase your joy in the God who redeemed you. If it is the situation where God is bringing you to brokenness, and maybe you've been part of the church for a long time, or maybe you just kind of ventured in this morning at the invitation of a friend, if you feel a sense of brokenness and contrition over your sin, it's because God is doing something in you this morning by His Spirit. Don't ignore it. It's a gift. God is chiseling away your self-reliance and your pride, and as Jesus said, drawing you to Himself. In one of my favorite Martin Luther quotes, he explains how this works. He says, God must first smash the beast of self-righteousness and its brood of self-confidence, self-wisdom, and self-help. 
Then the conscience welcomes the gospel of grace with its message of a Savior who came not to break the bruised reed, nor to quench the smoking flax, but to preach glad tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to grant forgiveness of sins to all the captives. And I hope that's the case for you this morning. I hope that if you're in Christ, you're encouraged by the fact that God has made promises to you that He will fulfill. His love for you, it doesn't wax and wane. It's unwavering. It's steadfast, immovable, and He's loving you even now. He will love you through what you're going through. If you're not in Christ, my prayer is that God will draw you to Himself, make you aware of your need for a Savior, and bring bring you to that place of humble faith. Well, Paul would spend the next two years in Rome preaching the gospel, and for some mysterious reason, the authorities never tried to stop him. We don't know exactly what happened, at least from Acts, what happened after that, but according to early church history, Paul stood before Caesar in trial and was exonerated um, and then uh, set free to go about his preaching ministry. Um, As you know, if you've studied any first century history, in in 64 uh, AD, Rome would be basically burned to the ground, which would cause Nero to go into sort of a paranoid a vindictive mood, a frenzy, and as a result, uh, according to tradition, Paul would be martyred by Nero, put to death by Nero. But the ministry of the risen Christ would continue and is still continuing. So as I wrap up, let me just share with you a couple of stories of Jesus' continuing work right here at our own church. A few weeks ago after the worship service, We received a connect card from a visitor, someone who checked the box, I made a commitment to follow Christ. So naturally, we followed up as we do with all the connect cards. And if you're a visitor this morning, we'd encourage you to fill one out and drop it off as you leave. But we followed up, and uh, again, I, I called the phone number listed on the card, and the one who checked that box was a young lady who lives in Rhode Island who visited with a friend, happened to be in Madison, visited with a friend, visited, visited Capsaw that Sunday morning, and I listened to her explain her experience, share her experience as she was with us on that Sunday morning. And the way that she summarized, she said, she, she said, I had what can only be described as a real encounter with the living God. She said it was one that inspired me to want to know God more. That same week, I received an email from our ministry partners, the Timothy Initiative, which is a global, par- uh, global uh, church planning ministry that we support at a high level, very, very connected to at Capshaw. And that email told the story of a 60-year-old woman named Kadzo, living in a remote East African village, grew up the daughter of a prominent witch doctor, and she was recently introduced to a church planner who came to her village, who asked the people there if they would watch the Jesus film in their language. Reluctantly, she had 13 children, so, you know, where could she find the time, right? Reluctantly, she decided she would go sit and watch the Jesus film with a few others in that village. And God brought to saving faith everyone who watched that that, that film. They became, became aware of a Savior who lived for them and died for them was buried for them and rose again, according to the Scriptures. A Savior who made it possible for them to know the real, true, living God and be forgiven. Sometimes we think the ministry of Jesus ended when He 
rose again and ascended into heaven, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is still at work as he sits at the right hand of the Father where he is bringing people to saving faith, drawing people to himself, and praying for, helping, loving, and holding fast his own. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love which is steadfast, your love which never ends. Thank you for the way that you have loved us and how you have loved us and when you loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God loved us and sent his son. Father, we praise you for that. I want to pray this morning that you would do a work in our church. I want to pray that you would do a work stirring within us greater affection for you, greater love for neighbor, greater concern about those who are lost. I want to pray that you would empower us and embolden us to share Christ with others, recognizing that Jesus is still doing a work even now. And I want to pray for that person who's here this morning. I have no idea who it might be, who maybe has been going through the motions for years or decades, never really turned in repentant faith to Jesus. Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I want to pray for this young lady that I talked to who lives in Rhode Island. I want to pray that you would encourage her in her faith. I want to pray that you would, you would uh, allow her to find a church where she can be fed Christ week in and week out. I want to pray for that person here this morning who knows you, Lord, who's, who's a believer. But all the cares of the world, all the stresses, all the pressures of life have him or her just beaten down. I want to pray for your supernatural encouragement to him or her. I want to pray for your ministry to those who fit that description. Minister to us today, Lord, in a profound, supernatural, powerful way. Have mercy on us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.